and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We broadcast every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Our website, as always, is ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. There you can listen to our broadcast in podcast form, and you can check out all the videos of the interviews that we do and they're on the website. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where I've been for a while, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, uh, who's uh, he's he's huddled in place there in Toronto, Ontario, David Clement. David, how goes it? It is going well. It's going well. Another week, another show. Um, this one's particularly good. Two great guests. We have our colleague, Bill, um, manning the mic and conducting one of the interviews, which is always great to have another uh, another voice in the mix. And yeah, just a, just a, a doozy of a show. So yeah, we've got two interviews lined up for y'all. Uh, one will be with Chris Snowden of the Institute of Economic Affairs, uh, one of the most prolific writers against the nanny state. He's been waging these wars for a long time. He brings many nuggets of knowledge. Uh, so we'll be speaking with him here in the program, and then we'll also be speaking, or Bill will be speaking with uh, Professor Kathleen Heffron from Cornell. Uh, she's a fellow Canadian, but uh, she is a microbiologist, and they're mm-hmm. talking about sustainability, uh, sustainability agriculture, and uh, the sort of anti-innovation types that are trying to steer agriculture uh, back to the, uh, essentially to, to the Stone Age. Uh, so very good insights from that interview uh, that Bill conducted. I think we're going to have a Pretty good show. I mean, this is this is the kind of content that you can get on Consumer Choice Radio. It's a lot of fun, um, at least for me. I'm, I'm back in the U.S. now, as I mentioned, and uh, been living the life here in the burbs and understanding what it's like to be in the middle of the political battles of today. It's uh, it's a bit crazy the amount of mail we're getting, ads on TV, yard signs, flags, boat rallies. I mean, the amount of stuff I've seen is crazy. But uh, David, what's been scratching your noggin here the last uh, the last week? So I went to a bookstore yesterday for the first time in a while, and I will say with a hundred percent confidence that there are too many books about Donald Trump. We oh, have reached my God, yes, we've reached the limit. And yes, I know that there's a, a new one that just came out from Woodward, and I think that he's probably one of the more like legitimate voices in terms of the president, but. I walked through what would be like the political slash history aisle in Indigo. And it was like every third book was a book about Trump and the scandals. And I think it's now at the point where for prospective authors, just like I have said to comedians, just enough with Trump. It's not, it's like, we get it. It's not Trump jokes are stale. Um, You can still think that he's awful and the worst human being and, 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 want Joe Biden to win. I think that's totally reasonable. But for the same reason that I've, I've said that, that comedians need to just stop making cheap Trump, uh, cheap Trump jokes. Um, authors need to stop writing these, these Trump books because it's just, ugh, it, there's, there's so much more to discuss than how awful the president is like, dive. I mean, the guy go. is living, he's living rent free in so many brains. Oh, I, mean, I know. For, for a real estate guy, he must be loving it. But I had the same experience. I went to the Barnes & Noble um, that were in the Burkdale Village, north of Charlotte, which is an awesome mixed-use community, Yimby. Um, and there, same thing. You look at, it was like political books or whatever. 
it's like and it's all by anchors it's all by journalists who are supposed to be covering this stuff you know not objectively but you know at least cover the facts but every single one is hoax it's all the stuff about impeachment that everybody forgot about there's like a bunch of books on trump's taxes which everyone is obsessed with <laughs> I, I i don't understand i guess that's the pitch today i mean david i guess if, if we put together a, a book of all of our articles and just slapped you know trump's world on there we'd probably get you know two hundred thousand copies sold who knows <laughs> uh, maybe but i mean i hope people just stop buying these books because like if you really hate the president that much go out and ensure that joe biden wins please and th- these are not you know these are not uh, convincing any new people you know you're not going to have a guy who has been not say, let's not say warm to Trump, but he's just been like, okay, I, I oppose many of, of the, let's say, Democratic or sort of left-wing programs. Yeah, whatever. He's not going to all of a sudden waltz into Barnes & Noble, pick up some, you know, Michael Wolf or uh, Woodward book, which, by the way, they're super long. I don't know any, I don't know mm-hmm. many people who would read these things. I will, Nobody's going to read this book and change their mind and say, oh, you know what? I don't like this guy now. I, I will say with Woodward, he at least sits down with the president. Like if you're writing a book, yeah, what the hell is that about? And, why why would you, you agree to that? Yeah, well, yes, I mean, who who allowed for him to do that? I don't know, but uh, if you're writing a book and you've never like reached out for comment or sat down with the president, and the book is about the president, that just feels weird to me. Yeah, because you're all going off of secondary secondary sources. Sources say whatever. A uh, good example is this Brian Stelter book. Uh, he's the guy on CNN? reliable sources, CNN. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's obviously a big target for uh, <laughs> people making fun of him online. But he came out with this book. I think it was called Hoax or something like this. And a lot of it is around the media industry around Trump as well, and then supposed nuggets of information of you know what some people have said off the record. And <laughs> you know, there's like zero insights. You know, I've, I've watched a couple of his interviews, and it's just like there's no way. And that's one category. The second category uh, that you didn't really talk about are the pro-Trump books, and these are again written by anchors and you know people who are more at right-wing broadcasters, who they know there's no way they write these books. No, they're no, on radio not. three hours a day. It's like Sean Hannity's come out with like four books in the last year. Like you're on radio three to hours a day. You're on TV one hour a week uh, a night. There's no way you're writing a book in between. Well, so and those it's all books written are, by interns or something. And those books are just as bad because it's basically like 300 pages of like the seal clap of like, yay, the president. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, and it's it, like it this, is. And it's a lot of uh, sort of bending over backwards. And, you know, if that's the problem with books is they're on the record. So go back to these people's books from 10 years ago. How much of it lines up, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, fast forward to let's say the next Republican administration. So let's say the Republican party kind of returns to normal, right? The Mitt Romney-esque type Republicans in a post-Trump era. I don't know if it will, but let's say it does. How are we gonna look back at the mental gymnastics that some of these folks had to do to support the president? Gold medals. Yeah. They all deserve gold medals. Like I can you know, picture we, it now. We but... wanna put you on the gymnastics team at the next Olympics. How about that? Yeah. Like, I mean, some of the, some of the leaps, I mean, evil Knievel couldn't make some of these leaps. 
in terms of how the, the the lengths in which they go to to defend the president. So when I criticize I mean, old old reference there, but I love yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, anyone under the age of thirty five is like, wait, what? Who's that? Is that that guy in the leather suit with the motorcycle? Um, yeah. So the the comment on books applies to all authors. Like, just stop writing books about Trump, please yeah. and thank you. And, you know, one person who has not been writing about Trump, but rather a lot of the policy in all of this area and uh, someone who has expertise on all the nanny state issues that we do discuss each and every week is Chris Snowden. Uh, So he was gracious enough to join us on the program. Um, I think he's in South England uh, somewhere. So he he was able to set us up and uh, we chatted on the Zoom call and figured we'd uh, we'd share that with you all. So, uh, David, could you uh, could you prompt Jamie to get that clip going? Yeah, Jamie, let's uh, let's play that clip. Let's go right to that interview. I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball. Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 1067 FM. Uh, we're very delighted to have Chris Snowden on the program. Uh, Chris Snowden is uh, someone who's been a figurehead at the Institute of Economic Affairs in the United Kingdom. He's a prolific author, journalist, writer. Uh, He's kind of the go-to guy if you're not a fan of the nanny state in the United Kingdom and around the world. So, Chris, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So uh, we wanted to talk about a couple of things. Uh, First off, I do want to point our audience to your website, velvetgloveironfist.blogspot.com. You've been running that blog for a long time with great articles about all kinds of insights on the nanny state. And I want to talk about your latest article uh, in the Washington Examiner about the drinking recommendations in the United States. It seems as if uh, there's been a couple of people who've uh, somehow ringed some hands in D.C. and now have uh, are trying to convince us to drink less. What's that all that about, Chris? Yeah, it's the, the official government drinking guidelines. It's not the sexiest of topics, and it might not seem all that important because they are only guidelines at the end of the day. You can't ignore them. But I've seen this happen before. Um, Four years ago in Britain, the guidelines were dropped. And the science strongly suggested that, if anything, they should have been raised. So we went down to essentially a a pint a day of of beer was uh, the male guideline. It had previously been 50% higher than that. A few years earlier, it had been twice that. Um, There's just the process of these guidelines being uh, reduced and reduced and reduced. I think eventually they'll go down to zero. I think the temperance lobby wants to have a message of no safe level. Um, it will be politically easier and better for them. And it will also be a simpler message. I mean, these guys do like simple messages. However, it does not reflect in any way the science. The science suggests that you can be consuming something as a man uh, at least um, 30 units of alcohol. Uh, the current UK limit is is now 14. So when I did some research and I, I, I started making some freedom of information requests, started looking at the documents and the minutes and the emails behind this process in the UK, I could see that it was essentially it was rigged. They didn't look at the evidence. They got some people in to do some theoretical modeling. Uh, and when the theoretical model didn't support dropping the guidelines, the people modeling it were told to change their methodology. The model has then said there's no scientific justification for what you're requesting, but they were told to do it. They were paid a bit more money, and the, the, sure enough, the new model supported lower guidelines. This, exactly the same thing happened in Australia um, a few years later with the same modeling team. Uh, and the system in the US is currently under review. It gets reviewed every five years, along with all the dietary guidelines. And in this instance, they don't seem to be trying to model their way out of it. 
but they um, they are taking a very one-eyed look at the evidence. The only person on the committee that has drawn up the kind of draft um, guidelines, the advisory committee, the only person who has a history of doing alcohol research has a long-standing position that the guidelines should be reduced and, and he's been one of a very small clique of people who've been banging on about this for years producing studies essentially trying to cast doubt on the evidence that moderate drinking is not only risk-free it actually has health benefits uh, anti-alcohol academics really hate the idea that moderate drinking has health benefits but it clearly does we have 50 years nearly of evidence consistently showing this from around the world is particularly beneficial to cardiovascular health and that helps drive a general reduction in all-cause mortality for moderate drinking moderate drinkers as compared to teetotalers. So the, the process seems to be underway in, in the US to drop the guidelines for men um, from two standard drinks a day to one standard drink a day and as I say that it simply doesn't reflect the evidence. It I think it, it's bad actually in the long run for public health when they're putting out advice that is evidence-free and simply not credible. I think most people are not going to believe that drinking more than one Budweiser after work is, you know, is hazardous drinking. So it, it's not credible advice. It's not science-based advice. And um, I'm hoping that kind of, you know, s s more reasonable minds will prevail in the U.S. But they haven't done it in Britain or elsewhere. Well, and I mean, how is... Americans are drinking more than Bud, though, Chris. I, I have to, I do have to <laughs> say that now. <laughs> And, and how is the pandemic playing into this discussion, uh, especially in the UK? Because I know that in, in both Canada and the United States, it's really been a mixed bag. We've, we've had um, headlines that have said that, that, let's say, Canadians are drinking more than they ever are, and that's really just bad research. It, it, they're just buying more in one purchase at the liquor store or the beer store uh, because they don't want to go out all the time and, let's say, expose themselves to... COVID-19, um, while at the same time, we've had some politicians uh, like the premier in Quebec, um, who they asked if they, they were going to close the liquor stores. And he was like, no, I mean, you should be able to get, you should be able to have a glass of wine and unwind at the end of the day. Um, so very hands-off approach, which I think was very much appreciated. Um, but has, has the pandemic fueled or, or uh, exacerbated this debate in the UK? Not in the UK. We actually had our liquor stores designated as essential services um, before the lockdown, which was nice. Other places have taken a very different view. At one point in April, I worked out that one in four people around the world were living under alcohol prohibition. You had prohibition throughout um, India, South Africa, all the usual places in the Middle East that you normally have it, plus a number of other places from Greenland to the Philippines where they, they had various forms of alcohol prohibition. Um, so, uh, you know, different countries are clearly taking a different approach. My, my understanding of the figures, at least in the UK, and I'd be surprised if it's significantly different in the US or Canada, is there's been a really big drop overall in alcohol consumption. Um, it hasn't been my experience, personally, I must say. I think some people have reacted in different ways. But because the, the bars and the restaurants and the nightclubs have all been closed, the kind of people who only really drink when they go out have been enormously cutting down their consumption. You look at the share price of the major alcohol companies, they've all gone through the floor. Um, so I think we've had something like a 40% decline in alcohol consumption overall. However, the newspapers have only looked at the sales in the shops, which of course have gone up, but they have to go up a lot for, to, to make up for the, um, the, uh, the on-trade. 
and um, yeah, overall it's, it's it's been a drop. But yeah, I mean across the board, really, we've seen the pandemic being exploited by some nanny state groups. Um, so you also had tobacco prohibition in South Africa for quite a long time, with fairly predictable consequences for the black market and, and organised crime and so on. Um, and even in the UK, you know, there's a whole load of uh, so-called anti-obesity policies that have gone through recently because our Prime Minister Boris Johnson got COVID. He was hospitalised with COVID. He fully recovered, but he seems to believe that it's because he was um, significantly overweight that he had such a bad time in hospital. So a whole bunch of nanny state policies to do with food have been introduced off the back of that. So, yeah, it's, I, I honestly thought at the start of this pandemic that the nanny state stuff would have to go on the back burner. People wouldn't care about it anymore. They would understand how trivial all this stuff is compared to a genuine public health problem. But actually, it didn't take long for the nanny states to regroup and find a way to exploit it to their advantage. And who are some of these temperance groups that you mentioned? You mentioned the alcohol academics and researchers uh, who contributed to, to this recommendation in the dietary guidelines. But are there other groups of concern? I mean, you mentioned some of the other ones in the other areas. But I wonder if there's people that, you know, we're, we're not really highlighting enough in our, in our media. Um, obviously, these are the people that are probably being quoted and maybe giving a lot of advice, but uh, sort of who are the brand new nanny staters of the 21st century? Well, some of them aren't even actually that brand new. I mean, some of the old prohibitionist groups are still going. They just changed their name. The Anti-Saloon League is still going. I'm trying to remember what they now call themselves, but they, they never went away. There's still a prohibition party, of course, in, in, in the U.S., um, I, I don't know who their candidate is for the forthcoming election. And in the UK, we have a group called the Institute for Alcohol Studies, which sounds like a fairly dry and academic organization. But prior to that, in the 1980s, it used to be called the UK Temperance Alliance. And prior to that, in the 19th century, it was known as the UK Alliance for the Suppression of All Intoxicating Beverages. So um, the, temp the true you know, gospel temperance movement is still with us to some extent. But mainly, um, it's taken on the guise of public health. Um, so you just have people who, for whatever reason, are anti-alcohol, sometimes for religious reasons, sometimes just for you know, genuine um, health reasons or moralistic reasons, or uh, in some cases, simply kind of an anti-big business attitude, which pervades uh, public health. So I, I can't speculate on all these people's motives, um, but they... And their policies, which are the traditional temperance policies of restricting licensing, putting up price, um, restricting advertising, um, they they are they have the upper hand. I mean, generally speaking, in this debate, as I say, the the number of people who in you know, in the scientific community who seriously doubt the health benefits of modern drinking are very very small, but they're extremely influential in. Um, in public health academia and as i say one of them has got himself onto the committee that's looking at the guidelines in the u.s and seems to be leading that discussion wow uh one thing i wanted to mention as well and i think you, you probably added some twitter snark around it uh, by the way you guys can follow chris on twitter at cj snowden snowden with an o uh one thing that has come up in the media a lot is how millennials are killing the alcohol industry they're killing the bar industry because they're not drinking as much they're trying these kind of uh, new flavored drinks. I want, my question is, you know, how is the market responding to kind of people's different drinking habits? And, and how much of this is driven by government? How much of it is by innovation or thoughts on health? Because I think when I go to the store here in North Carolina, 
I mean, I've got all these awesome hard seltzers. I've got all these different ciders and all these like new categories of drinks that are awesome. They might not have as much alcohol as some of our traditional products, but it seems as if the market is delivering kind of what consumers want at the end of the day. And we don't really need uh, a new government guideline to kind of guide us in that direction. Yeah, I mean, people are drinking less for a variety of reasons. Um, there is a slight increase also in the number of people who are not drinking at all. And partly that could be demographic. Obviously, if you have more Muslims in particular in the country, you're going to have more teetotalers. But more often than not, it's actually just people, particularly millennials, are drinking less. They're not drinking nothing, but they're, they're drinking less. And actually, they are not necessarily spending a great deal less. So craft beers, that's a pretty good example of the category where the price per unit of alcohol, as it were, has significantly gone up. So millennials might go out and might only have two pints of craft beer, but it will be significantly more expensive and with a bigger profit margin. And the drinks industry, I guess, would say that they're absolutely fine with that. You know, they, they want to make a profit, of course, but that doesn't mean they, um, they rely on volume. You know, they rely... On, on, on profit and they rather upsell people to premium brands than have a lot of people uh, drinking uh, a large quantity of budget brands. I mean, apart from mm -hmm. anything else, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad look for alcohol if you've got people sloshed all the time on cheap cider. Uh, much better to have a nation of moderate drinkers who are spending more money on premium brands. And what's your take, and this may or may not be the case in the UK, um, but it certainly is here in terms of consumer trends. Something that's become quite popular are kind of calorie conscious uh, beers, ciders, um, hard seltzers. They'll, they'll advertise quite aggressively in terms of like, we only have two grams of carbs. Is that something that you're seeing in the UK? And have you done any research into like the emergence of calorie conscious beverages? I haven't personally, because I'm not personally very interested in them. I'm a fairly traditional drinker. I don't go for the craft beer um, particularly. I, I like my red wine, but you know, you kind of know where you are with red wine. That's not going to change dramatically, I don't think, at any point. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it is still a very uh, innovative field, the alcohol field, um, whether it's cocktails or craft, craft, craft beers or the, the kind of the, the low-calorie drinks that you mentioned. Um, but I don't really get I don't really get that involved in the industry. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the, in the in the policy overall. Um, it's a, a best a kind of a side issue to me where the market is going, which categories are, are growing and shrinking. Definitely, and, and um, one thing that I've definitely been in tune to following you and a lot of your work lately is that all these issues, as we mentioned before, have been sort of exacerbated or maybe improved under these lockdowns. And uh, you've sort of been a champion uh, for, for liberal causes, little L liberal for American listeners. And, you know, this has been a, a grand debate, I think, uh, that has become in some places very strange. I mean, everyone's walking around with masks. Businesses are not able to open. Um, I know we're talking about what some of the companies are doing, but, you know, a lot of mom and pop shops probably won't exist uh, because of these lockdowns. Uh, what, is, what is your sort of take on where we are right now with, with lockdowns imposed either in the UK or anywhere else? I think you've been following this trend a lot. Uh, sort of, uh, is this going to keep going? How long is, is this going to last? Well, I guess it will last until they've got a, a vaccine widely available. Um, and I'm relatively um, uh, optimistic about that. I think it will probably be sometime around spring next year. 
don't have any special knowledge about that, but it seems like there's a lot of candidate drugs and a lot of the companies are pretty confident about getting at least one of them to market. Um, however, that does leave at least six months and it, it leaves a winter period for us in the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm not so much concerned about the, the virus itself, I have to say. I think I'm, I'd rather take my chances with the virus than put up with um, another six months of this kind of thing. Our government has just announced some truly lunatic ideas, really. It's got something called Operation Moonshot, which apparently is going to cost £100 billion. And the idea is to ramp up testing to, so we can test them like 2 million people a day. I mean, it's just not going to happen. There, even the government is not so inefficient. It can spend £100 billion um, building factories by winter. There's the, the time frame, apart from anything else, is simply too short. And although we haven't gone back into lockdown, and there's absolutely no reason to go into lockdown, we've got very few um, cases, actually, although they have risen quite a lot in the last few weeks. Um, the government's just introduced this rule. It's called the Rule of Six. And the only good thing about the Rule of Six is it's easy to understand. It just means that six people can gather, no more than six people, indoors or out, and that includes children. So effectively, a family of four can't meet up with another family, even in a park. And COVID marshals will be enforcing this, and the government made it quite clear that they will be, you know, clamping down. Um, it, it's insane. I mean, even if you thought that now is the right time to start bringing in some more restrictions, th this particular rule, it's it's contemptuously stupid, and it will be treated with contempt. I think I'm certainly not alone in, uh, you know, pretty much had an, having enough of this. The the increase in cases that we've seen has seems to be largely driven by people aged between 17 and 21 who are almost certain not to die from it, uh, very likely not to even know they've got it. And frankly, if I was aged between 17 and 21, I wouldn't be paying any attention to the rules at all anyway. You know, th this should be the best time of their life. They've just missed out on a golden summer. Uh, we're looking at a thoroughly miserable winter. We were lucky with the weather under lockdown. It's gonna be 10 times worse uh, with winter weather in, in Britain. Um, and I just don't know what's gonna happen. And where, why do you think so? I mean, we see polls all the time where they'll say like 70% of Canadians or 65% of Brits are in favor of another lockdown if cases rise. Why do you think there is such an appetite um, for what are, what are obviously quite severe measures? Because a lot of people are totally insulated from the consequences of their actions. Uh, we had, at one point this year, 9 million people on furlough. Um, they were being paid either 80% or 100% of their normal wage, and they could just sit at home during the sunniest summer on record. Um, you have the people who influence decisions, uh, you know, people, the journalists, uh, the, the media class, they're all enjoying it. You know, um, they, they, they're quite happy working from home. They've got nice homes. They've got laptops. Uh, they need to go out and about. The, the roads are nice and quiet during lockdown. Uh, a lot of people have really enjoyed lockdown and they haven't had to pay for it. And the fact that the national debt is going through the roof is something that's quite easy for them to put out of their minds. So, yeah, yeah, if there's no cost to lockdown and it means you can spend more time with your family and, and, and play computer games and read books, why, why wouldn't you be against it? Um, we need to, I think, uh, you know, make people more directly associated with the cost. I, mean, I don't think we should go into lockdown at all. I think Sweden has proven that we don't need to do it. Um, but if we were to start bringing in some form of lockdown, I don't think we should be borrowing money or furloughing people. 
I think at the most we should say, look, if you want to stay home, you can stay home. You can get a, a loan from the government, but you'll be paying it back. Wow. Um, we're speaking with Chris Snowden here on Consumer Choice Radio. He's head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs in the United Kingdom. Chris, before we go, I wanted to ask you about your book. Uh, this is available on Amazon. We'll be linking to that in our show notes. And I mean, David and I, you know, we're, uh, we're just kind of entering this. You're, you're sort of a veteran of these fields. And obviously, we look up to a lot of your writing and a lot of your efforts over the years. I think you've been an amazing, consistent voice and uh, really one that has brought clarity to, I think, millions of people around the world, uh, no doubt. But tell us about this book, Polemics, uh, the idea for this, you know, pulling together all your articles and what that process has been like. Yeah, I've been writing about this stuff for well over 10 years. My blog was set up in 2009. And I thought I'd pull together some of the articles I thought were, uh, you know, kind of stood the test of time and were fairly amusing or interesting or, or useful on a whole range of subjects. I mean, about a third of it um, focuses on the Danny Slick stuff that I've kind of um, made my uh, my niche. Uh, but there are other things, you know, uh, politics and culture, and a few a uh, few opinions about various random things in there. Um, so I just I pulled them together rewrote quite a lot of them i have to say they, they they all benefited from being improved gave them each an introductions to give them some kind of historical context um and put it out as a kindle book on amazon which is available for the bargain price of two pound 99 because let's face it there is an element of money for old rope with this most of the articles although not all of them um are available somewhere on the internet if you can find them but uh in an inferior form they are new and improved in this book so if you want some light reading uh, go ahead and, and download it. Awesome. Um, so in closing, we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, but I just want to kind of highlight one thing. I would like actually for you to highlight one thing for our listeners. So Yael and I talk about the nanny state quite a bit. You have obviously been doing it for, um, for significantly longer than, than we have. For our average listener, why does, it, why does the nanny state matter and why should we care? Why should they care about the nanny state? Well, if you're libertarian-minded at all, you should certainly care about it, um, partly because there's so much of it around. This is something that's always on the cards. It's always in the news. It's always being pushed on us. And generally speaking, we're fighting a, a, a losing battle um, a lot of the time. It affects a lot of people as well. You know, Some of the things that get discussed about by libertarians or by people who are interested in politics in general actually don't affect that many people. Um, uh, whereas this, you know, it really does have a meaningful impact on people's lives when the, you know, taxes go up or the government bans uh, flavored e-cigarettes, to give a, an American example at the moment, or people are banned from smoking in all sorts of different places. Um, it has, you know, it has a meaningful effect. And as it, it ramps up over time, you know, it really snowballs and becomes pretty scary actually um you know we we know the lessons and we hope we know the lessons of prohibition i feel we're moving towards uh some form of prohibition in a lot of these areas and so we naturally anyone who believes in freedom should be concerned about it um so i think that's kind of the, the main reason um it's something that it's is going on all the time and yeah sure you know having a sugar tax isn't the worst thing in the world and there are bigger issues to fight in that respect especially at the moment of course we've with COVID-19, but I mean, the, the lockdown stuff really is just a reductio ad absurdum kind of conclusion to the idea that um, health is more important than freedom. 
Wow. And with yeah. that, yeah, I was just going to say, and, and, and beautiful way to close. Um, certainly strikes a chord with Yael and I. I'm sure lots of our listeners will, uh, that will resonate with them as well. Thank you again for, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. We truly appreciate it. And uh, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Yeah, it's okay. Awesome interview with Chris Snowden. Again, guys, please follow him. One of the most prolific authors on all the topics that we discuss, uh, and he's kind of an OG in the consumer choice field. So definitely we uh, we owe a lot of gratitude, actually, to the Snowden's writings and, and a lot of his influence over the years. He, he walked so that we could run. Yes, and we sprint. We sprint towards that finish line. Yes. And we're sprinting, we're sprinting now to the, the second interview. Uh, this is with... Our colleague Bill Vietz, who led this, uh, this is with Catherine, uh, sorry, Kathleen Heffron. Uh, she is uh, over in microbiology at Cornell. Awesome interview on agriculture and sustainability, and what is the future of awesome innovative practices in agriculture, and who are the people opposing them? Uh, so we'll go ahead and, and get Jamie to hit play button on that. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us, uh, Kathleen Heffron, um, or Dr. Kathleen Heffron, um, from, uh, um, from Toronto, uh, who completed her PhD at the University of Toronto and currently teaching microbiology at Cornell University and part of the Active Learning Initiative at Cornell. Uh, she has many years of experience, uh, especially in making vaccines and plants. That's something we're going to talk about at the end of this interview just a little bit. Um, and also, uh, which is known as a plant molecular farming. Uh, and she's also written a couple of books. Uh, most interesting to our audience uh, would be Let Thy Food Be Thy Medicine, published by Oxford University in 2012. So Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for being with us today. Oh, not at all. Thank you very much. Uh, so we want to talk about food, of course, the consumer issue number one. We all eat it every day. So, uh, and, 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 and one disparity that I've noticed covering agriculture for the Consumer Choice Center is that a lot of consumers sometimes have a lot of opinions about food, and some of them are activists in that range, but not necessarily, <laughs> they don't have necessarily all the information about it. So let's start a bit at the beginning. Let's go through what what problems do farmers actually run into? So when you when when a farmer works on food, trying to grow it, what sort of problems is he and she confronted with when it comes to pests and diseases and the like? Well, that's that's a great and you know highly complex question, which you know I uh, I think uh, someone who's an expert in the field could uh, talk for hours and hours uh, about. But I think that um, you can really narrow it down to a number of different uh, pests that uh, are, are issues for farmers. Insects, pests are a big one that we hear about all the time. We've been hearing recently about the uh, locusts in East Africa. So that's an example or fall armyworm, which is, uh, I don't think it's so prominent in Europe, but it's certainly in the US and now it's uh, moving on to Africa, I believe. Um, diamondback moth is another one that we hear about. Um, so insects are a big one. Uh, bacteria, uh, we have bacteria which infect plants and it's difficult uh, for farmers to deal with that kind of situation. Uh, fire blight is one I'm thinking about which infects amp, um, apples. Uh, and there's a variety of other, I think xanthomomas, 
monas and um, fungi. So you may have heard of um, wheat rust, wheat stem rust, which uh, I think wheat feeds about a fifth of the human race. And we do not have uh, that under control as well as we should. So this is a fungus which can uh, decimate uh, wheat crops and it's spreading and it's difficult to treat. So that's another one. Um, and then we have nematodes, which are little soil worm, small, tiny worms, uh, which can carry diseases um, and viruses. I'm actually a virologist by education. So um, that's my uh, forte. And uh, there's plenty of plant viruses which can decimate crops. Some of them just blow around and land on crops and cause damage. Others are carried by insects or um, other vectors such as nematodes. And they can be very difficult to deal with. Just as we have trouble with COVID-19 right now, um, we, you know, farmers can have trouble dealing with viruses contaminating their, their crops. So those are uh, some of the pathogens. I think someone who is an expert in the field could probably come up with even more, but those are some you would, you would definitely be aware of as a farmer. Right. The, I, I, you, you hear sometimes that products in the supermarket are being sold and marketed as natural. There is often this implication that our ancestors didn't have any of the common problems of today. They didn't have to deal with all of these pests and diseases and viruses and back when it was peasant farming everything was 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 jolly and good is that true like how have we evolved in any way in the way we do farming well that's a that's a great question too so i think that's kind of a um you know a nostalgic kind of fairy tale you know it's a bit of a fantasy where we forget how or you know we've lost track of how how difficult it was for farmers in the past so sure there were diseases that were um you know um, uncontrolled and people lost their crops, their livelihoods, there were, there were famines, there were, you know, all kinds of problems. And we, we just don't necessarily think this way anymore. Um, uh, largely do, I think, to improvements in agricultural practices and our, including our use of chemicals and, um, and our, uh, you know, in, in certain cases, even, um, you know, uh, biotechnology, the advent of biotechnology. But um, uh, I think our yields have increased uh, dramatically just by um, um, learning how to farm smarter and to uh, um, take advantage of all the different types of inputs we have available. Even things like irrigation, you know, which we don't really think about these days, um, you know, that was a problem in the past. So people wouldn't have access, continuous ac access to water for their, their crops. And now we, we know how to how to work to you know make sure that's available. So it, it, some consumers would say, like I, I remember even my grandmother saying, well, if you have mold on something, you just scrape it off. If there's something ugly on the fruit, you just get rid of it. How does a, something that affects a, um, a, a plant or anything that that is that is being grown, how does it affect human health? So how can something that like we, how can our food make us sick? Is that is is that is that a common problem? How does it how does it manifest? Oh sure, so so sure that can. I think you know the first things I, that came to mind when you mentioned that is is just you're losing uh, productivity. So you would have, you know, some of some of your crop is just going to waste. You're not going to be able to eat it, um, and that's you know that's a really terrible shame. And that certainly happened in the past. 
In other instances, the crop can become uh, uh, toxic, in fact. So I think it's, um, uh, uh, in certain cases, uh, you know, when, you know, we can we can talk about uh, um, BT corn, for example, but um, uh, uh, some corn that would be in infected by uh, insects would become, uh, uh, I guess, uh, um, broken down or um, you know deteriorate so much that uh, um, uh, infections, bacterial infections, can take place or fungal infections inside of the the crop and um, these toxins could be produced that can make you very sick and, and kill you or or cause cancers or miscarriages and that still takes place in uh, parts of Africa and that's a, a, a matter of uh, you know these um, uh, pathogens being able to spread through crops and the people there not having the right tools, to have proper storage containers, and things like this, where they can control, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, spread of these pathogens. So, so certainly, it can infect your your health in in many ways. Yeah. So, when you mentioned the when you mentioned the the, the solutions to some of these problems, when we talk about chemicals. Um, Especially here in Europe, uh, people are very anxious of, 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 of these of these crop protection tools, pesticides. And, you know, you have you have the, some of the worst names on the book for, and, and we even see in France that farmers are being attacked by by people just for simply going out on the field and spraying. So um, simultaneously, in, in in the United States and in Canada, there seems to be less hostility to it towards towards the agricultural sector. So right now in, in the European Union, we have something called the farm to fork strategy, which seeks to increase organic farming to up to 25% of all uh, farming in Europe, which is currently around 7% average in, in most in most member states, and sometimes less. So um, why is that? Why, why are Europeans so watchful and so suspicious? while there seems to be considerably more innovation going on in North America? Oh, that's a really great question. I think I, I have, have pieces of answers. I probably don't have all the answers to that one. Um, I think that part, part of the answer lies in just the history of the two continents. So, um, you know, North America was, uh, you know, populated later by, um, you know, uh, um, uh, um, and farming um, was developed a bit differently, I think. Whereas in Europe, I think we have these, you know, very old farms, and it's just, you know, it's just a, um, it's a different setup. So, so you just have different. Um, both both places come from different histories. I do think um, as well um, that, um, well, well, another thing to say for for what it's worth is, you know, in uh, in North America. Um, uh, things can be quite harsh here in terms of the environment. So, you know, we have, you, you know, we really have to uh, work. I think our, our pioneers probably had to work very hard to to uh, tame the land, you know, so to speak. So we have, you know, in Canada, deep frosts and, you know, very cold weather and, you know, can be very hostile. So so people had a different approach. And whereas, you know, in somewhere like Italy, it can be quite quite pleasant most of the time and you just wouldn't encounter the same um, uh, challenges. So I, I think that had an effect as well. 
Um, but mostly I would say right now, I think there's, um, it's the um, uh, uh, um, activists, the, the uh, ability of activists to, to get through to uh, Europeans in a manner that, um, you know, maybe they're not as successful as at doing that here in uh, North America. And, you know, we had, I, I hear about, um, you know, GMO fields being, uh, you know, burned down and things like this, you know, in uh, Europe. And I don't think you can, you know, I don't think I ever hear of that happening here. So people don't seem to, um, you know, they've grown up with technology. Technology has been developed around them. This is a new co country in it, in a matter of speaking. And they just don't seem to hold the same, uh, uh, um, uh, sensibilities about agriculture as uh, the Europeans do. So, so that's some of it. I think Europe as well. The regulations are different. Um, we have uh, the the um, product and process. I think uh, Europeans are into. Uh, I think it's the process where they're very concerned about how the crops were developed. Whereas in North America, we're more concerned about the product, you know, what does the product look like? And if it's basically you're getting the same thing, no matter how, you know, what breeding technology you use, it's still, you know, basically the same. So, so um, you know, those are, those are some things. I've, I've heard from European scientists that, that um, uh, uh, Europe in general, it's difficult to make any kind of decision in Europe, because um, there's all these countries who have their different opinions, and and um, to get a consensus is next to impossible. So I think that slows things down, and perhaps here in North America, it's just the way um, our you know uh, countries are set up, things can move a little more quickly. Um, that th that's certainly a thought. So um, those yeah, those are some. Yeah, we have something called, in the European Union, we have something called the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle basically applies to the technology itself, which is the reason why uh, most GMOs and, and, and gene editing technologies such as CRISPR have actually not been, uh, have not been legal in the European Union for, uh, for, for food production. Um, so actually, let's get to that topic as well. Um, so what exciting innovations can uh, farming actually still produce is because people would look at the farmers like what 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 could be possibly uh, change or achieve in, in in farming but like what what amazing technologies are out there to revolutionize the food that we eat but that some europeans ought to know about before they become too skeptical about what you know become too decisive about what ought to be outlawed let's say right okay well, that's, that's a, again, it's a really, you know, broad and enormous question with, with lots and lots of, of ways to answer it. But um, I think, um, uh, you know, reduced use of um, pesticides by using genetically modified crops is, is, you know, it's very clear. In fact, I have a few um, papers here. This is one from uh, Matt and uh, Kaim. I don't know if you've, you guys would would have heard of this, but he's from uh, uh, Got, uh, University of Göttingen. Um, you can pronounce it for me. I'm sorry if that's how you say it. I'm uh, in not Germany, sure. I'm not, I, you're not uh, sure. Göttingen. Oh, yes, oh, exactly. Yes. Guten, sorry about that. No problem. Um, but he, he has a table here. So there's just, you know, enormous amounts of 
scientific literature showing how uh, genetically modified crops have helped farmers and helped the world. So, so here in his table, he talks about the yield is uh, in general 22% increased for all um, for GM crops versus conventional crops. Pesticide use is down 37% in general. So you're reducing the use of pesticides, which is important. Profits for farms is up by 68%. So these are like really, you know, significant, um, Im important numbers for, for people to be aware of. And there, there's just tons of, of literature of, of this sort of nature where collections of studies after studies. But those are kind of the main, you know, I think, you know, we were talking about, um, um, pests and pesticides and things like this. There are so many other uses for um, genetically modified crops or gene genome edited crops. Uh, for example, we can uh, decrease the use or the need for fertilizers. We can make crops more nitrogen efficient. We can make them uh, more climate smart so they would be able to um, uh, be resilient to um, um, big temperature changes or, you know, you know, high, you know, very hot or very low temperature or um, uh, flooding, you know, um, salt tolerance. Um, all of these are going on right now. They have nothing to do with synthetic chemical inputs. They, they have to do with just making the crop um, be um, um, better suited for a, a changing climate, which is what we have right now. I'm very interested in um, uh, nutritional content of, of crops. So, so we have uh, nutritionally enhanced crops, for example, crops that um, express uh, omega-3s, which are oils um, that are found in seafood. So we don't have enough of these oils uh, available for the human race right now, but we could make them in crops. So, you know, how great is that? We can really uh, save some people. Uh, we have, you know, um, iron and zinc um, fortified crops that people can grow themselves and they don't need to be handed supplements. And that could be very useful for people who are in developing countries and just don't have access or, or have disrupted access. So certainly right now with COVID-19 disrupting our food supplies and, and what have you, you know, people are losing access to their regular uh, you know, you know what what their regular you know regular international trade. So if they had their own crops, that this would this would be great for them. Um, other uses are uh, bioremediation. So if you pollute to the areas, we can design uh, crops that will rid the you know get rid of the pollution, which I think would be really wonderful. And um, you know those are a few. Um, genome editing is the next uh, step and. You know, it's such a shame, it's such a terrible shame that Europeans have not um, thought to have this technology accepted because it really involves just making a change or two, a nucleotide change or two to a crop and making it uh, uh, very uh, feasible for a university or, you know, a small group of people to develop a crop that could be uh, quickly available uh, to everyone. And, um, you know, um, it, I, I just think that's, uh, um, that's certainly the way to go and it's very, it's very exciting um, from, from my perspective and I hope that Europeans uh, change their mind. There is some hope though. I had a, another paper I was um, reading about um, 
uh, and this is someone from Romania recently who just wrote about more favorable attitudes of Europeans about GMOs. And they're talking here specifically about something called cisgenics. So cisgenics is when you have a gene from a crop that has, um, uh, that you can transfer to the same sort of crop. So for example, you might have a tomato, one variety of tomato, and you'd like the gene from that tomato to be in another variety of tomato. So they're both tomatoes and one, one variety lost that gene and the other one has it. Or you could have an, um, a wild type crop that has a resistance gene, but it was lost over domestication and it's no longer there. So wouldn't it be great to go back and take the wild type crop, the one that's grown in the wild and find that gene and put it back. So we lost it ourselves over, you know, you know, millennia of, of, of growing and crop breeding, but we could return it. And so we really not, you know, it's, it's not quite the same as a GMO. And somehow it seems that, um, according to this, that Europeans are more in favor of that sort of thing. So that kind of, um, you know, that's a use of the technology and, you know, it could, it could really make a difference uh, again uh, for Europeans, I think. My big concern about um, this, um, you know, uh, farm to fork policy is that uh, I don't see I don't see how the numbers work. Um, usually, when we think about organic farming, um, we often think that that um, the the uh, um, yield is lower. You know, if if um, faced with different stresses, and for sure we will be faced with stresses with climate change. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's more difficult for uh, Europeans to, uh, farming to, to uh, get the same sorts of yields. So if they can't increase their yields and they're using, not using synthetic uh, chemicals, though organic farming does use some, you know, chemical input. So, so it's very confusing for, you know, just, it, yeah, I have a lot of trouble understanding what, what the, what the shtick is here. Um, but um, where will they get their food? Because they won't be able to make enough. They really need to double their uh, productivity for the next, you know, I'd say within the next 50 years. And, and you, if and they're not doing that in yeah, Europe. Exactly. Yeah. So and if they can't the do only, it. You're not the only scientist who actually brought this up. So this brings me to another point, And I think that is, that is something we've experienced in Europe is that when scientists have brought this up and when the European Food Safety Authority has said, certain chemicals are safe. The, in the political process, what we've seen is that we, we've started doubting the scientists and the integrity of the scientific uh, process that was behind it. Do you feel this as well in your work? Do you think this becomes an increasing problem? And maybe if you have an example, um, I mean, pretty sure that your expertise, vaccines in plants, I mean, I can, only, I can already imagine what people might accuse <laughs> you of doing tampering with our food. <laughs> Can you can you can you talk right. to, can you talk to that a bit? Well, that's a that's a great one too. Um, so certainly, you know, hanging around with people at the university that doesn't happen too much uh, where I'm where I'm questioned in that manner. Um, but you know, I think we we met on Twitter, and and that is a place where certainly I'm I'm kind of out there um, um, trying to uh, defend science. I think that's that's why I've come out there, and. Um, uh, uh, yes, people question all the time. Um, it's um, 
you know, a, a, a worry that the world is, is, is kind of succumbing to um, conspiracy theories. And I, I think this is kind of the same, you know, it's, it's part, part and parcel, or, or this has been going on for a long time, perhaps, uh, where uh, um, there, you know, there's either the concern that somehow I'm linked to, you know, big egg, whatever that might mean, some large multinational, which, um, you know, I get, I can get kind of furious at this because, you know, we're just, we're just publicly funded scientists. So no, that's not true. Um, or, uh, or there's something about, you know, some Bill Gates, something or other. <laughs> I always have trouble with this one too. Um, and um, sure, I do get attacked and it's as if there's some ulterior motive and the motive is that somehow there's a, there's a payment that I'm getting or there's some kind of, you know, something from large industry. And no, this is just, you know, it's, it's not true. Um, I've learned to let it roll off my back. I think it's better to still, you know, try to, um, you know, you know, comment and not, not get to let your feathers get too ruffled about these kind of things. And I think at the same time, people are listening, you know, some, although some are attacking, it's probably just a noisy few. And there's a lot of other people who are listening and they're, they're getting what I'm saying. You know, I think, I think that's true as well. So if I'm able to sway a few people or make, uh, make them think differently or have a little bit more knowledge, um, then that's great. You know, that's, that's all I can expect. And some people, I think they're, you, you can't really change them. Um, some, some people have had bad experiences. I, I can see that when I look around, there's, you know, people who've had cancer and they don't know who to blame or they're looking for someone to blame or, or um, they're angry at the healthcare system that of the country they're in. And that's, you know, those are, those are extra complications that can, can, you know, lead one to, you know, be suspicious of, of, I guess, science, but um, we still have to persevere and uh uh you know try to move forward and and try to keep people informed and you know not let them um phase you <laughs> a very a very canadian uh approach optimistic and understanding i uh i can i can see that that definitely has uh, that influence um unfortunately we're coming to the end of of, of this segment uh okay. kathleen where can people find you and your work Oh, thanks. Um, so yes, I'm at Cornell in the Department of Microbiology. Um, you can look me up there. Um, if you go to, you know, I think you can Google me or go to um, PubMed and you'll find some of my papers um, and learn about some of the work I've been doing, I've, I've done in the past. I think, you know, that's, that's great as well. And, you know, that's it. I don't really have a, a web page at the moment, but maybe I should make one. <laughs> you should, you should, and we'll definitely link to you. Thank you so much for clarifying some of these issues and giving us some insight in, an, in a very understanding, uh, in an understandable way for, for our audience. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll continue with the show. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Awesome hour uh, that we've been able to produce for you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, David, always a pleasure to be back on the mic with you. Yeah, yeah, it, is a, it was another fantastic week. Um, as I always say, thank you to our listeners who are tuning in live. Thank you to those who listen wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, the Apple Store, etc. Be sure to like and subscribe. Uh, also, be sure to follow our Twitter account for Consumer Choice Radio, which is Consumer C Radio. 
Um, that is where we will house many updates. And as always, you can follow along with the show at consumerchoiceradio.com. So thank you again for another week and we'll see you next week.